When a believer allows themselves to live with unconfessed sin, it is not uncommon to slide into a mentality where we begin to self-govern and self-guide rather than looking to the Lord for those things due to the relational issues it causes. Welcome to A Walk in the Word, where we bring you the Sunday sermons from Providence Baptist Church Gaston's worship services. In this week's sermon, Pastor John Friedrich points us to a hard lesson learned by Israel to teach us what pitfalls to avoid. Let's join in as Pastor Friedrich preaches a message entitled, Out of Luck, from 1 Samuel chapter 4. Well, it's good to be in the Lord's house this morning with all of you as we open up His Word and see what He has to say to us. So as I said, we're going to be at 1 Samuel 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. 1 through 11. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were to come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth rang again. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord was coming to the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God is come into the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of those mighty gods? Those are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten, and they fled every man into his tent. And there was a great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you once again this morning, we are thankful for this time we have together, Lord. We thank you for those that have chosen to join us this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Uh, to see what you have to say to us today, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to lift your name in praise and worship. It's truly a blessing and an honor to do so. And Lord, now as we go into this worship hour, until we go into the sermon, we just ask, Lord, that you open our hearts and minds that we might be receptive to that which you want us to hear, that which you want us to take in and take root within our lives, that it might bear fruit to your honor and glory. And Lord, I know I'm not worthy to be the one to stand here today. I know that there are many far more qualified, but I just ask that you take me and use me as you see fit. Take away anything that in any way, shape, or form could interfere with the message. Pride, selfishness, distraction, whatever whatever it might be, Lord, take it all away. Empty me, make me your vessel, <clears throat> and fill me with your spirit that I might only say the words that you've laid upon my heart. 
And Lord, help us as a church to continue to strive to move forward in this dark and desperate world that we live in. Help us to be a shining light, a city upon a hill, that we might reach out to those around us and show your love and the hope that only you can grant. And Lord, as individuals, let us see opportunities to share your salvation, Lord, to, to let everybody know that the time is running short and that you are the only way to have a future in the, for all eternity, Lord. And Lord, we ask that you forgive us of our sins. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. A lot of times when we, uh, in our relationship uh, with God, we at times will go through phases where we have sin that we tend to not confess. And our relationship with the Lord gets somewhat polluted. And we face this significant challenge in our lives. And we tend to turn a lot of times and cling to things of a symbolic nature at that point, rather than the ma making the most important move we have, and that is just simply turning back to God. Uh, we may take the easy road and wield something with some semblance of religion as almost to say to ourselves, see, I'm still kind of a religious person. And God is going to take care of all my problems because I'm religious. And it's a lot like what the circumstances that the Israelites found themselves in in our text this morning. During this period we read about in God's Word, it teaches us some very important lessons about the times where we deviate from God's will. And we tend to forget what we really need to do, and we tend to cling to the things that we, by our sinful natures, tend to gravitate towards. But when we, before we dive into this, let's kind of put some context into what was going on and what we read this morning. And we're going to review a little bit. Our passage this morning shows us at a very curious time for the Israelites. They were without a king at this point, and the nation had seen the recent rise of Samuel as a prophet and judge. But things were still not quite right between Israel and God. The relationship still wasn't where it needed to be. For one, Eli and his sons were still practicing priests in the house of worship. And while Samuel... <clears throat> the blessing from God to Hannah for her fervent prayers, if you recall, was an up-and-coming bright spot. Within the house of worship, there was a stain. There was a problem. Eli was the father of the two priests in the temple, Hophni and Phinehas, and they did not do well. In fact, they did evil in the house of the Lord, as the Bible tells us. They took advantage of their positions to abuse the, sacrifice, the sacrificial offering as well as committing sexual sins with servant women in the tent of meeting. And they had complete disregard for the sanctity of the office to which they were placed. And it raised anger of God. And God looked to Eli being the father to deal with his rebellious sons. You see, understand something here. The priests were abusing the highest religious office in Israel. And it would have been appropriate for Eli to have gotten the people to strip them of their post and stone them for their behavior, for their violation of God's commands, their violation of the position. Their sins were very heinous. They were very serious sins that they were committing. But Eli didn't do that. Eli instead basically looked at him and said the equivalent of, now y'all cut that out. 
he didn't really deal with the problem. And to make matters worse, we see Eli had made himself fat or obese, actually, from the offerings himself. He himself was somewhat abusing the sacrifices. And if that wasn't bad enough, the Israelites knew what was going on. And they didn't do anything about it either. So we've got a complete disconnect going on here in the house of worship. It's clear that they had a very serious problem in God's house during this time and a glaring sin in the nation that needed to be dealt with. But instead, did they address the issue? Did they take steps to, to take matters and, and correct the problem? No, they did nothing. It was being ignored. Now this is the environment and the circumstances that we find going on right now. This is the context of what was going on in the nation Israel as they approached this situation circumstance where they went to battle against the Philistines. Now the Israelites obviously found themselves at odds with the Philistines. And the Philistine army, so much so, they march out to fight them. But there's a problem. They suffer significant losses. They get beaten pretty badly. Kind of like one of those lopsided games you watch in the playoffs right now. There wasn't even a contest. So the leaders, they gather together, they get themselves together, and they, they basically say, okay, what, what happened? What went wrong? How did we get beaten so bad? Now, at this point, they're at a critical junction as a nation. They are at a fork in the road of sorts to what they should do. So at this point is what I want to do is jump in and look and begin to look at their actions, what they did and what they should have done and see what God is saying to us and how we apply these very lessons to our lives so we learn from the mistakes of the Israelites and how we can apply them to our lives as well. And the first thing that we see that they messed up with is we do not depend on human wisdom versus God's direction when we seek answers. I said before that Israelites were at a very critical junction here. The Philistines had just handed them a pretty decisive defeat. And as God's chosen people, they needed only to look back at their history to understand that any time they were acting in alignment with God's plan, victory was pretty much assured to be theirs. Because we know God fought their battles. When God said go to battle, God was there, and there wasn't anything the enemy could do that was going to make them lose. And this knowledge would become widespread as we see in 2 Chronicles 20.29. 20, it says, And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they had heard that the Lord fought against the enemies of Israel. Why do you think that the Philistines suddenly were upset when they realized the ark was there? They were thinking in their mind, oh my goodness, God is with them in this battle and we are sunk. We don't have a prayer. Now let's stop for a second and rewind just a little bit. If we go back into 1 Samuel, we take note of something. Notice in verse 1 how it says that Israel went out against the Philistines to battle. But nowhere do we see them seeking God's will. Nowhere do we see them going to their faces in prayer. 
to see if God wanted them to even go out in battle against the Philistines. And if he did, how were they supposed to approach this? Now some people might point out the first part of the verse where it says the word of the Samuel came to all of Israel. But this is a case where we need to know what was said prior to this. And if we look at chapter 3, you'll note that it was talking about the rise of Samuel as a prophet and the nation's recognition of him as a role, in that role. So the first part of the chapter was simply stating that he assumed his role as a prophet. But once again, we don't even see Samuel saying, go into battle. So it was almost like they made this autonomous decision all on their own, without regard to Samuel, God, nobody. They said, let's go to battle. So what do they do? They go off and they get whipped. They get whipped soundly. They come back and then they gather the leaders together and they say, man, what happened? How did this happen? Now we've seen this before, right? We saw it with jo Joshua when they went to battle against Ai. What happened? But when they gather the leaders together to see what happened, a very interesting statement is made here that could have changed the course of what occurred after this moment. Note that the leaders make this specific observation. Listen to the wording of the verse here. They say very clearly, Wherefore hath the, what? the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Interesting statement, don't you think? Not, how did we lose to the Philistines? How did they whip us today? No, they say, wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? This is huge. The Israelites are recognizing that it was not the Philistines that had defeated them, but rather that the Lord had allowed the Philistines to defeat them. Amen. Now this should have sent off warning bells all over the place. Those guys that supposedly were in touch with the Lord should have said, whoa, okay, wait a minute, I think I see the problem here. But we don't see that. We don't see that happen. Instead, we see that as a symptom of their sin problem, they see it as effectively laying blame on God. Because they respond as if, why didn't God let us win? As if God is to blame for their circumstances. That's a selfish response. But how often do we do it? How often do we look at our circumstances and say, God, why did you do this to me? God, why did you put me here? But it was our own decision, our own actions, independent of God's direction, that landed us in that spot in the first place. You see, God never told them to go to battle with the Philistines here. They had made the decision to go out in battle against Philistines without godly counsel, and instead relied upon their human wisdom to make decisions. I want to point out something else that's very important at this juncture here. We should never, ever blame God for our self-created disasters. When we decide unilaterally to do something and it blows up in our face, don't go running to God and ask why He did this to us. 
Amen. We did it to ourselves, and in reality, we shouldn't even ask, why did you let me do this to myself? There's never a right time to make a decision outside the counsel of God. Let me repeat that. There is never, and we'll justify it, try to explain it away, we'll do it so often in our lives, there is never a right time to make a decision outside the counsel of God. We should always be on our knees seeking God's direction for any decision in life. You know, some people say, well, this isn't that big of a decision. Don't you think God needs to be a part of it anyway? Amen. <clears throat> Doesn't matter how logical the decision might seem. I'm sure that in their mind they had rationalized some reason why they needed to go to battle against the Philistines. They needed to go to war. Maybe they were worried because the Philistines were already massing for battle and Israel just went out to deal with them. Well, they're, they're lined up for battle. Well, surely we need to go out there and do the same. What we do know is that apparently it was not God who wanted them to do that. And had they taken the time to seek out his answers, they would have known that. And as I said before, human wisdom may lead us to the most logical conclusion, but that doesn't always mean it's the right one. We've got to remember that it tells us in Isaiah 55, 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Do you think your mind can grasp God's greater plan? Do you think God, and all his thoughts and infinite wisdom, can be contained inside the human brain? I don't think so. I think that's a pretty obvious no. See, we don't always know why He chooses to do what He does. But what we do know is His choices are always right. And because of that, we should follow them. Amen. So we should never depend on human wisdom versus God's direction. But instead of recognizing the situation here, instead of realizing, man, we messed up on our first go-round here, so this is what happened. This is why it didn't turn out the way we wanted it to, and realizing the truth of their earlier statement about God allowing them to be defeated, they make yet another mistake. And that brings us to the next point. God cannot be manipulated by our actions. You would have thought at this point there would have been some significant prayer and seeking of God's answers. But instead, what do we see? They decide to go about it all over again. Even though it didn't work the first time, but this time they're going to they're gonna bring a, a ringer, right? They're going to grab the Ark of the Covenant and they're going to drag it into battle and this is going to be the answer, right? Note that they say, let us bring the Ark, not... Let us seek God's will or consult God. They refer to it and not he. Now, the ark was supposed to be the visible symbol of God's presence among the Israelites. But understand something critical. It was never meant to be a substitute for God himself. Amen. 
We'll get to talking about how they treated the ark more in a minute. But I want you to observe here is the intent of what the Israelites were doing. Their line of thinking was that they, we are going to do what we wanted to do, but this time we're going to drag the ark into it so it'll go our way. You see that? They are effectively trying to manipulate God into giving them what they want. Let's bring the ark into it so God has got to do it. The ark's going to be here, so by golly, God has got to be a part of our plan then, right? Let's drag him into it and make it go our way the way we want. Do we ever do this? <laughs> All the time. I would even go out on a limb to say that many, if not all of us, are guilty of doing this even without even realizing it sometimes. And here are some of the ways we're guilty of trying to manipulate God. When we act in obedience, not purely out of love, but to obtain something, whether that be to earn favor or try to coerce an expected outcome, we're trying to manipulate God. What does it look like? Well, maybe we try to bargain with God. God, I'll be faithful in this if you just... God, I'll do this if you will just... And you can fill in the blank. God, I promise I'll study my Bible religiously if you would just... God, I'll promise to attend church regularly if you would just get me out of this bind. And the list goes on and on. Amen. In each case, we're trying to force our desired outcome onto God by some actions that we're doing as if we're using Him as a bargaining chip. Maybe our, tips, our attempts take the form of silence from God. God, I'm not going to come back to you, come back to church, or spend time praying until you do this. Sometimes we try to blame Him for what's going on, thinking we can shame Him into making things right with us. Can you imagine God ever coming back to us and saying, you're right, I was just being mean, I'm sorry, let me make it up to you. You realize how ridiculous that sounds when you think about it? And yet, how often do we get mad at God for the way something turned out? How often do we blame Him for the way something played out that we don't like? And then there's a cousin of that same thinking, and that is trying to reason with God out of His choice of actions. Some would even go so far as to use his word to justify a desired outcome, even after God has chosen. Don't ever try to use God's word to manipulate. Don't try to use it to prove that God's choices were wrong. Yet we find ourselves doing one or several of these things, really when we're not willing to fully surrender to God's will. We wrestle with the selfish desires of the flesh and we allow them to lead us and try to use God as a means of getting what we want. Something that is a very foundation of what they call the prosperity gospel. Understand something very, very critical right here. God is sovereign. He will not bend to our whims and desires. He will not be manipulated no matter how clever crafty or convincing you think you might be. And know that His ways are always right. And they're always best for us no matter how much we may think otherwise. Remember what it says in Romans 8.28? 
And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them that are called according to His purpose. Sometimes that's a hard one to grab a hold of, you know? Because we're given this promise that everything, the stuff that hurts, the stuff that's painful, the dark times in our lives, we know, based on this promise of God, that even those things are for our good. From a worldly or fleshly perspective, we look at it and say, there's no way this is a good thing. But God's promise says, yes, it is. If we understand His purposes, if we understand His plan, we would be able to see that even those dark times, the difficulties, the struggles, the outcomes that we don't want anything to do with are for our good. Trust in His ways and don't try to force our purposes and our desires on Him. God is not going to be manipulated by man. And that ties in closely to the next point. And that is that there is no power in religious objects or rituals. Rituals. On the surface, this point might seem painfully obvious, even to a new believer. But if we take a close look at our actions, I think that many of us would be surprised to see how we kind of very subtly put a certain amount of stock in this. But let's go back to the Israelites first. Let's go back to the decision that they made to bring the ark into battle. <clears throat> you see, they were bringing the ark into battle. The truth of the matter is they were looking at it as some kind of a good luck charm. To them, this was a, a, their lucky four-leaf clover, so to speak. And it would seemingly give them a boost at first. We read about them having such a tremendous celebration at the arrival of the ark that the ground literally shook at their cheering. <coughs> so much so that the Philistines heard this and they began to get concerned. They're worried. They're listening to the Israelites and saying, oh man. And they get word the ark's over there and they're saying, oh, we might have a problem here. But as with any charm, tallyman, good luck piece, ritual, favorite item, whatever you want to call it, there is no power in it. And the Philistines begin to take a different approach. Once their initial fear is pushed aside with the thinking they're going to go down, they said they're going to go down fighting. They said we don't care what they have. We don't care what's going on over there. If we're going to go down, we're going to go down fighting every step of the way. And much to the credit, the Israelites get beaten even more soundly, considerably more soundly than they did the first time they went after them. First time was 4,000. Second was what? 30,000? That's a lot of men to lose. 30,000 would die this time for their misguided choice. And in fact, the defeat was so decisive, we read about the phrase used that they all fled every man into his tent. That means they ran off the battlefield back home. They didn't simply retreat and set up a new, uh, a new uh, reinforced line. They took off. They said, we're done. We're out of here. I don't even want to fight anymore. They abandoned the battlefield and retreated completely. Now you would think from Israel's initial reaction to the ark arriving on the battlefield that momentum had shifted. But no. 
You see, that was just emotion. We've got to be careful not to mistake emotion for God's presence. Emotion can be a dangerous thing when it's devoid of the Spirit of God. It can lead to poor decisions and false professions. As a pastor, it scares me sometimes to think in some of the things like our youth camps and things like that, where emotion kind of stirs people to make a, make a move. How, how many of those professions of faith were emotionally driven as opposed to spirit driven? But the Israelites, in their case, they had put their faith in the ark, an object, and not in God. Understand that focusing on religious objects or rituals instead of God himself is superstition at best, and it's idolatry at worst. Going to church, reading our Bible, making professions of faith. Do we think deep down that these things will somehow influence God to act in our favor? Do we ever feel like maybe because we do, uh, we spend time in our word, in God's word during the day, we spend time in prayer, or go to church, do we ever think that somehow God will like me better because I'm doing this? God, I'll learn favor with God because I'm doing this. As if there's some power in us doing it by itself. Do we think that God will act differently towards us because we do that? Maybe we wear a cross thinking there's some protective power in it. Maybe we wear Christian t-shirts because we think it somehow uh, it identifies us and then it protects us in some way. Now, don't get me wrong. There's no, nothing wrong with those things. But when we ascribe some power, implied or otherwise, we've crossed the line. We think that simply doing religious rituals or activities for the reason of the power we think it wields, we've gone astray. When it comes to those things, prayer, study, church attendance, whatever, the goal is not to earn favor. The goal is not to somehow score points. The goal is to seek God Himself. God is the one who holds the power and God will wield it as He sees fit. We are simply to seek His will and His face. And the things that happen will be His will and if we have truly sought His face and if we are truly surrendered to Him, then we'll be satisfied and content with whatever those outcomes are. Now some might say, well, what about prayer though then? Should we not pray for certain outcomes? And I want to be careful here because there is power in prayer. There is power in prayer. Should we not pray for certain outcomes? But it's not that we control the outcome with our prayer. But rather, as I've said before, the prayer is the idea of aligning ourselves with God and His purposes and His will. Remember the prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden? If there's another way, let this cup pass. But what was the tail end of what he said? He had, there was no problem with him expressing his desire to God. But ultimately, he said, whatever you want of me, let that be the case. Let that be the, your will be done. You see, prayer isn't to try to change God. Prayer is to change us. 
we can be guilty sometimes on a lesser scale of believing that there's power in these things. You know, professional athletes are notorious for this, particularly professional baseball players from what I'm told. Their lucky socks, a certain hat. I'm going to take a test today, so I'm going to bring my lucky pencil. Seems somewhat innocent, right? But are we trying to ascribe some power to the object? Can't ever lose sight of the fact that God is always in control. He is sovereign and he's not turned control over to anyone else. But the Israelites had become so wicked that the ark itself was viewed as a superstitious lucky charm. It was an idol. It was no longer seen as a symbol of God's presence, but rather an idol as possessing divine power within itself. Note that the real problem here was that their hearts had turned from God. And that brings us to the last point. There can be no relationship without repentance. Notice that there is a prophet available. Samuel is on scene. But no one's looking to him for guidance. No one's saying, Samuel, could you petition God for us? Let us know what he desires of us. What his will for us is. No one is falling on their faces before God looking for direction here. No one is repenting of wrestling control from God or desiring to know His will instead of bewailing the nation's sins and preaching public repentance and interceding for mercy from a forgiving God. What do we see Hophni and Phinehas done? They joined in with this superstitious idea of grabbing the ark and dragging it into battle. The priests... This is what happened to Israel. This is a reason for their defeat by the Philistines. God's face was hidden, his presence taken away because of their sin and their wickedness and their failure to repent. It's the same way with us. It's the same way with us that things caused God to turn away from us, to remove his presence from us. Isaiah 59 2. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Do you ever wonder when you've got unconfessed sin why your prayers don't seem very effectual? Do you ever wonder why it feels like maybe those prayers aren't even going past the ceiling? That's because that sin creates a barrier between you and God. When we lose the relationship with our God through unconfessed sin, we're going to cling to other things. We're going to try to grasp at other things, but we're going to find that none of them can fill that void. The Israelites found this art the hard way to the tune of 34,000 lives. And the loss of the one thing that represents the presence of God amongst themselves. Because if you'll remember, this is when the ark was captured by the Philistines. It was captured and carried away. Now how, somebody asked, well, how could God allow something so sacred to be captured by a heathen people? Well, there's several reasons for this. He wanted Israel to understand that his presence had left Israel because they had forsaken him. He wanted them to also understand that the visible ordinances of religion will only profit those who have the Spirit of God within them. And lastly, even though we may use different instruments and rituals of religion in the practice of our faith, God's presence and workings are tied inextricably to those things. 
are not tied, I'm sorry, not tied inextricably to those things. Just because we have them doesn't mean God's presence is a part of it. So there was a significant message there for the Israelites when they lost the ark. Upon the news of the ark, Eli, the father of the two priests, fell backwards and died. Not the fact that his sons had been killed, but because the ark had been taken. He recognized that God had left them on their own at this point. I'll tell you a quick story and then we'll, we'll, we'll close here. The story is told of two brothers, age 8 and 10, who are getting into a lot of trouble. You may have heard this one before. Their mother brought them to see the pastor to see if he could help straighten them out. Their pastor talked with the younger brother first. He looked at the young boy and asked him, Where's God? The boy's eyes got really wide and opened up, but he didn't answer. So the pastor asked him again, a little bit more forcefully, Young man, where is God? The boy began to squirm in his seat, so the pastor asked yet another time in a very loud voice, Young man, answer me, where is God? At that point, the boy leaped out of his seat and ran out the door right past his brother who was waiting to go in next. The older brother chased him down and asked, What's the matter? To which the younger brother replied, We're in big trouble this time. God's missing and they think we did it. <laughs> now this is funny. It's a funny story. It's amusing. But there's a greater truth in this that ties with the message today. If you have unconfessed sin in your life, then God is absent from your life right now. There is a void between you and Him. You haven't lost your salvation if you're saved, but there is a void. God has not moved. You are the one that has moved. You are the one that has stepped away. For a believer that Jesus Christ, this absence is merely relational. It can be remedied through repentance and reconciliation to God. But if you're an unbeliever, God is missing altogether. He is in no way connected with you. He is not communicating with you. Amen. But understand something very important. And we went over this in our Sunday school lesson this morning. He is pursuing you. He doesn't want you to remain apart from Him. God sent His Son to die for all people. Not a select few. For everybody. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are God's enemy right now. And even with that, He is pursuing you. That's how much He loves you. That's how much He wants a relationship with you. You may rebel against Him. You may curse Him. You may do all the kinds of things saying, God, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want you in my life. But God still loves you. Amen. And He desires to have a relationship with you. He desires to be the, the joy in your life, the guide in your life. He desires all of those things that are lacking and while this world tries to tell you that they have all this to offer you, only God can offer that which lasts. Amen. And is eternal. And that is salvation. 
the Bible tells us very clearly that we have a sin problem. We have a problem that we can't remedy. We can't reconcile. But God has stepped in and taken care of it for us. Amen. And when Jesus went to that cross on Calvary, He took on all of the sins of the world. Past, present, future, yours and mine. And faced the full wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to take that punishment. And it says that if you'll confess your sins before God and believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again three days later, you too can enjoy a personal relationship with the God of the universe. Amen. What's keeping you from doing it? Don't let pride, don't let worldly attractions keep you from an eternity of happiness. And don't say, I'll just make a decision later because you got no guarantee you're going to have a later. Why not make that decision today? Let's stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne this morning, we are grateful that we've had this time together. Lord, we're grateful for your truth and what it shows us about us and our lives, Lord. Lord, just help us to always cling to you, to look to you for our answers. Let us never get drawn into superficial or idolatry-type viewpoints of any kind of objects or rituals in our lives. Lord, let us always know that a devoid of your presence, that none of it is any power and is totally meaningless. Let us always seek to have your presence in everything that we do and say. And Lord, I ask that if there's anybody in here today that is in need of your presence, I ask that you burden their heart in such a way that they would not walk out these doors without first giving their life to you. And Lord, just have your Holy Spirit burden all of our hearts for anything that may be in need of attention in our lives, that our relationship can be total and, and complete with you and without any hindrances whatsoever. And Lord, we love you and praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in next time for another Walk in God's Word. Podcasts are available in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, CastBox, Downcast, and BeyondPod. Search for and subscribe to Providence Baptist Church space-space Gaston Sermons. Until next time, may God bless you as we await His joyful return. Hi, this is John Friedrich, pastor of Providence Baptist Church. It's my prayer that our time together has helped you grow in your walk with God, or maybe He's even used it to guide you to discover the wonderful gift of salvation. If you're ever in our area, we would love for you to come worship with us. Our address is Providence Baptist Church, 977 Metafield Road, Gaston, South Carolina, 29053. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so through our website at www.providencembcgaston.com or email us at providencembcgaston at gmail.com. Again, thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to you joining us next time as we take a walk in the Word.